Taking up your cross, suffering and sacrificing have been superseded with name it and claim it. And as dark as I know it looks out there, the good news is that God is advancing his kingdom. And it's very exciting to be a part of his great commission. It's Sheila Zelensky. The Sheila Zelensky Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now... Here is your host, End Time Watchwoman, Sheila Zielinski. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Sheila Zielinski Show. I am your host, Sheila Zielinski, for this Wednesday, February 11, 2015 edition. A shout-out to the WWCR listeners and all you tuning in from across the globe. I've been getting emails about how to listen to the podcast, and there is a button right there on WeekendVigilante.com. It says listen live on Podomatic, so that's where to subscribe to the podcast. As well, you can go to updates under the show archives as well. So if you just go to the website, click on the menu bar, you'll see show archives, and all the show archives are updated weekly there as well. Folks, today I am very honored to have on my guest. He is a missionary evangelist with a worldwide apostolic ministry. He plants churches, he does powerful healing and deliverance, preaching the word of God. And here's the kicker. He went from being a federal agent in the war on terror to the real war on terror. And you'll find out more about what that means. Carl Henderson, welcome to the program. It is a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. It's good to be here, Sheila. Carl, I want you to tell people about yourself and your ministry, a little bit about your background. Well, praise God. By the by, the grace of God, I retired from federal law enforcement. I was uh, in the United States Border Patrol for 17 years and five years as a federal air marshal in the war on terror. And I retired and uh, took my family. We went to live in Asia and uh, began missionary work there uh, about three, four months after I retired. And we started out trying to be a part of a missionary organization that was present, but we really found, as I found in many different places, we found that there are a lot of people who were claiming to do missionary work and claiming to be missionaries who, in fact, weren't doing that. So after a lot of consternation and soul-searching, we ended up going out on our own, and we had uh, we really had used Acts chapter 1, verse 8 as our marching orders without realizing it, Jesus tells the apostles that you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth after the Holy Spirit falls on you. Well, what we had been doing was 
Uh, for years, we have been involved in evangelism both in Mexico and the United States. And then later, when I moved to Houston with the Federal Air Marshals, working in the housing projects in the ghettos in Houston. So we had been working in our Jerusalem. We ended up working cross-culturally in some of these ghetto places and, and uh, with p- the illegal immigrant communities that existed there in Houston. So that was our Samaria. And uh, eventually, uh, when I retired, God sent us to the ends of the earth. So we found, contrary to what we thought, we found because we had been doing evangelism, because we had already been so heavily involved in missions and church planting here in the United States, that we actually hit the ground running very quickly when we arrived in the Philippines in Asia. Wow. What was it like to go to the four ends of the earth? It must have been quite a culture shock going from the Lone Star State to countless countries deeply entrenched in sorcery and paganism and idolatry and thick witchcraft, shamanism, a far cry from Texas, huh? Yeah, we, you, you hit the nail on the head. We had the full, the full gamut. And then it's a lot of it comes in a synchronistic relationship with Roman Catholicism, which carries its own baggage. But when, when you weave the two together, it's a little bit more difficult. But we, by the grace of God, we, um, God give us a ministry of training up Filipino uh, missionaries as well. Maybe some of your listeners don't realize, but Filipinos are some of the most well-traveled people in the world. Almost anywhere you go in the world, you're going to run into Filipinos because they have an excellent educational system that was copied from the U.S. system. In fact, we established their educational system in the early 1920s and brought American teachers over and set it up. So it's very similar to our school system. And because of that, Filipinos who value education, as most Asians do, have a lot of open doors to go throughout the world and uh, and work in hospitals. And m- most people, if you've been in a hospital, you know you've got these Filipino doctors, nurses, physical therapists, and a lot of other professionals who are working all around the world. So we got a vision of training up Filipinos to be able to send them into the world to plant churches and do exactly what we were doing there. Uh, as I said, we didn't ex- exactly know what we were going to do with our, our ministry, but we kind of got put in a situation where we solicited another organization to help us put together a crusade, and they put it together, but they were going to be in charge. And then they came to me with fear all over their faces, and they said, my goodness, they plant, they put up big flyers, and these, uh, I mean flyers, these big canvas um, banners, and it says that there's going to be healing here. What are we going to do now? And I said, well, we'll heal. And by the grace of God, we had uh, 18 people healed that first crusade we did. We did it in a section of Manila that's such a violent section that the police don't even go there. In fact, the present mayor, when he took over, he tried to get the, the government to send the military in there. But we went in there and we walked around there and another place that's known for its violence in Tondo and we were teaching and preaching and healing and uh, and doing a lot of ministry in these places and sometimes walking home at 12 o'clock at night and yet because of God going with us, we never had any opposition or any trouble. I was actually kind of surprised. But that first crusade, a couple of the healings that were pretty unique that I just want to share with you to get some of your give your listeners kind of a, a, a feel for what, what went on when we were in the Philippines was we had uh, one, we had an, an older man who had had a stroke. So he was paralyzed on one side of his body. He had this one little withered hand on the left side of his body and his leg, and he couldn't speak. 
and they brought him to be healed. And so um, he couldn't sit in his chair on his own. He couldn't stand up on his own. People had to help him. We got him up, and we started taking authority using the name of Jesus. And I told him to move his hand, and he showed me that it didn't, couldn't move, and then all of a sudden it moved. And his face kind of lit up, and he was showing it to his wife. And I, and when I realized that the hand got healed, I told him, move your arm, move your arm. So he started raising his arm and praising God. And then he pointed to his leg and he told me something was, he pointed to his leg and told me something was happening. I said, start walking, start walking. And so, and so I had him marching in place and um, he got completely healed. So I brought my, my interpreter over and I said, let's get his name and get his testimony. And so she asked him, she said, what's your name? We want, we want you to give your testimony about being healed. And he told her, I can't speak. I've had a stroke. And then she told him, you're speaking right now. And then he went, oh, I can speak too. Wow. <laughs> and and the, the, the other very dramatic miracle that we had, and it, which really kind of gave us our, the new direction for our ministry, there was a 14-year-old boy that was brought to us, a little thin boy. By American size, he'd be about a 10-year-old or 11-year-old. But he was 14 years old. He was brought to us. He was deaf and dumb. He was brought to us by his playmates. He'd never been to school and uh, he played with them, but of course he couldn't hear or speak. And so they all heard about the crusade. They brought him there to be healed. And so when I had the translator talking to him, he was shaking his head, no, no, and he had this look of fright on his face. And I told her, I said, look, if he doesn't want to be healed, he can't be healed. And she said, hold on just a second, hold on. And she said, wait, he doesn't know why he's here. He's deaf and dumb. And he's scared just because he doesn't know why he's here and what the, what the big crowd is about. So by the grace of God... Uh, we we took authority over his ears and his tongue and healed him and set him free, and uh, and uh, sixteen other people were healed that night as well as these two. And one of the best ones was him in, in this healing was that he he could speak to us in his language, and within about twenty minutes he was actually speaking to us in English, which we hadn't we didn't see later. But I think God really showed us a bigger miracle this time than ever before. And one of the funny parts was we were asking him his name, and he told us, he told us in Tagalog, which he had never spoken, that's the native language before, and hadn't been able to hear before, he told us, I don't know my name, I've never heard it. And so the other kids started teasing him, and then we got his name, we told him what his name was first, and some of the first phrases he said was, Jesus is Lord, Jesus has healed me, Jesus saves, and, uh, and some of those things. So, from there, our ministry took off, and we began to be an equipping ministry, teaching and training Filipinos to how to heal the sick, how to do evangelism, and uh, training up Filipino disciples and Filipino missionaries who could replicate the work that we were doing as we went on. Uh, Sheila, one of the things that that really give our, our ministry kept morphing. We thought we we every time we thought we figured it out, and we were very very active. In fact. Um, most of the time I was gone so much I'd come back sick with heat rashes and pneumonia and bronchitis and as soon as, as soon as my wife would get me well we were off again for another two or three weeks at a time preaching and teaching sometimes preaching eight ten hours a day five or six days a week and then a crusade at the end where a lot of people would get healed and come to faith and uh, just very exciting but God kept changing our ministries so I want to tell you, speaking about deliverance, I want to tell you one of the ways how God began to change our ministry to more to, towards deliverance. Because we had, we were already sort of considered experts on deliverance. Because I, since I was a 
new Christian back in 1983, just a few months after I became a Christian, I myself got deliverance, and I found walking with the Lord was so much easier when I wasn't carrying, you know, 150 uh, demonic parasites yeah. sucking the spiritual life out of yeah. me, you know. <laughs> so, so I had I had uh, always more or less been involved. In fact, there was mission agencies that were bringing people to us. In, in fact. They were training people, and then their people in in worship, their people would begin to manifest, and they didn't know what to do. So in the middle of the night, I'd get knocks on my door. Here's these mission agencies that are well well known all over the world. If I mention their names, but I won't. Um, and they're bringing people to me, the unknown missionary, right. and I'm the one <laughs> I'm the one that's delivering all their people and setting them free. But one time we were doing deliverance in Surigao and Mindanao, which is um, as far south as you can go. We lived in the northern island of Luzon, but we did ministry all over the Philippines. And one time we were down there, and our housekeeper, who was the one, the woman who kind of cooked for us while we were there, when we uh, there's different ways to do missions, and sometimes the missionaries come in and they provide meals and they provide all the stuff for the people to come, and you get some people who are coming for food. And uh, but our ministry was totally different. We we're very low budget, basically living on my pension, and we really hadn't raised much support yet. And uh, over the over the years, we began to raise more support, but we didn't do it. So when when we went in to teach and train people, we would tell them. You need to provide a place for us to stay. We can sleep in your house with you, but you need to provide a place for us to stay, just like the apostles. You're going to have to provide food for us, but we're going to travel there on our own, and we're going to teach you free. But you're going to have to give us a place to stay, and you're going to have to feed us while we're there. And so in this particular case, the woman that was that they had kind of assigned to cook for us, it was unusual because we had um, four Filipino missionaries with us. Now, the Philippines is a unique country in that there are 72 different major dialects spoken in the country. It's an archipelago of a long chain of islands. And uh, the overall main language is supposed to be English if you've gone to school. But of course, you run into people who haven't gone to school or dropped out of school early. And so we had all these Filipino missionaries that we were training and equipping, and we would we would teach them two or three times. They would watch us do it, and then we'd begin to divide up the material and have them teach it. We would teach them to teach it and then have them teach it with us. And so we always had built-in translators if we needed them. But we were we were in a totally different part of the country. I had one guy with me who spoke five languages, and I had several uh, Filipinos who spoke three languages, and none of them could communicate where we were because it was different languages. In fact, when Filipinos can't speak to each other, they always end up going to English, um, which is the kind of the, the common one. Or they'll try the national language, Tagalog, but in a lot of places in the South, nobody knows it. So our housekeeper spoke a very uh, strange language called Chapacano. Chapacano is a leftover from the 350 years that the Spanish occupied the Philippines, and it's very Spanish. And because I had been in the Border Patrol, I had, I had a little bit of Spanish. And so it was interesting that none of our Filipinos could communicate with her, but I could speak with her in Spanish. And we would arrange for what we were going to cook and where we were going to meet and different things like that in Spanish. So she came to the crusade. To be healed, and uh, right in the middle of the crusade, this happened quite often, Sheila, that you start using the name of Jesus, whether it's to heal the sick or to cast out the demons, the demons get really uncomfortable. 
And so whenever we were healing in the name of Jesus, demons would manifest. And so all of a sudden, this woman, who's our cook and housekeeper, all of a sudden she screams and falls to the floor and spasms as the demon manifest. And so I went over and I began to rebuke this demon, tell it to come out. And and, uh, and the demon <laughs> kind of set up and shouted at me in English and said, I'm not going to come out. I hate this woman. I'm going to kill her. Wow. And so uh, I told her, yes, you are going to come out. And then I realized we're having a conversation in English here with a woman who doesn't speak English. <laughs> <laughs> so let me tell you, demons are, are – uh, they are fluent in a lot of languages because they've been hanging around for a long time. But anyway, um, uh, we continued to rebuke and take authority over this, and her face changed, and her spirit lifted, and she got up, and she even gave a testimony about the fact that she'd been delivered, and we'd certainly driven out uh, some demons. And uh, we all thought it was a victory, and I think there was about, uh, I think there was about 26 people healed and two people delivered in that crusade. And then a lot of people professed faith in Christ as well. And uh, so we left there, and about a week later, I get this phone call. And it's about that woman who had been our housekeeper. And she's in the hospital with high blood pressure. She uh, has stroke symptoms, heart attack symptoms. Her lungs are full of fluid, congestive heart disease, high blood pressure, and diabetes all at the same time. And about five or six things. And they don't think she's going to make it. And the first thing that crossed my mind was that demon said that he was going to kill her, and I couldn't stop it. But I had cast out the demons, and she even got up with a completely different look on her face and and give her testimony to the fact that they were driven out. But here they were killing her. And so, Sheila, from that point on, our ministry began to morph as I began to delve into deliverance more, and I realized that a lot of times – I was um, kind of getting surface deliverance, but I was never really getting down into the real problem that people had. We would be doing a crusade mostly for healing so that people could see the power of God and believe that God was real as as local people from the villages would be brought in with huge goiters or cancers or crippled and things. And then they would go on their way dancing and rejoicing and praising God. It's uh, As I used to say to the people at the crusades, I would tell them, uh, you know, after I would tell them the story of Christ and what he did and how he overcame sin and death, and, and I'd tell them the whole story, and I would say, isn't that a beautiful story? And they would all agree it was, and I said, well, how do you know it's true? How do you know I'm not making this stuff up? And, the, and then they would scratch their head, and I would tell them, well, I'll show you how you can know. Because in the name of Jesus, we're going to heal these sick people. We're going to show you that Jesus is real, and what he says is true. And if Jesus shows up and heals these people, then you'll know. He's true, and of course, we would heal a lot of people in these uh, crusades like this. Uh, sometimes everybody healed, never never less than 90% of the people healed. Very seldom will we have people weren't healed, and even most of the time people weren't healed were improved. And uh, But we would always have demons manifest, and so we would drive them out. And looking back, I know what we were doing is we were getting surface deliverance, and then we were moving on. And then, of course... Uh, I would tell the people at the end, you know, you can leave here having not put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus and having not turned from your sins and repentance, but you cannot leave here 
without knowing that Jesus Christ is real. When you see all these people who've just been healed in the name of Jesus, that Christ showed up. And and, uh, the scripture tells us that those he heals, he forgives. And that the God, if God can't heal the sick, then he can't forgive sin either. And uh, it's the God who heals who can forgive. And, uh, and of course, this would have a lot of impact on people's lives and we would plant churches. But from the time of that incident, our ministry began to morph more and more into deliverance, which, um, as you know, and anyone who's in deliverance knows, it's a lot more work. Deliverance is a lot more work, but it's the probably single biggest need in the church today in America or overseas. Uh, it's, it is the need that no one is addressing or Absolutely. not very many people are addressing. As a deliverance minister myself that does healing and deliverance in mega churches in the West, they're not, look at all their resources coming in. You'll never find a deliverance and healing ministry in there. You won't even usually find them giving to the poor or giving to the hungry or really ministering or to the missions. lost or, or missions yeah. or setting captives free, but they have no problem buying a jet and several $10 million properties because, hey, Carl, Every day is a Friday. You know, never mind those poor people. Forget the hungry or the afflicted. Just live your best life now. I think about Luke 9-1. And why do you think, Carl, the church has failed to complete the Great Commission? Well, first of all, uh, let me just give you one example. The way we heal, we know that we are healing the sick uh, in the name and authority of Jesus Christ to convince the lost that Christ, as he did in his own ministry, to show them that his ministry was real, to show him that he really was the Son of God. And that's the reason why we heal now, is to show people that the Son of God, that Jesus Christ is real, and that he still heals, he still sets the captives free. So uh, I'm going to go a little bit of a long way around, but I'm going to answer your question. I, I began to, people started inviting me into churches to heal, and I would tell them, okay, well, make sure there's plenty of sinners here. You know, put out flyers, bring in people, and, and if, you have a, if you have a lot of unconverted people here, we're going to see miracles like crazy. And so, sure enough, we would bring them in, and we would see, you know, 16, 18 people, 30 people healed, and, and big, you know, miracles would occur, and then the churches would invite me back again. I'd say, okay, make sure you have plenty of, uh, you know, you do an outreach and bring people in. And uh, one time I went back to a church for the third time, and they told us, they said, oh, we forgot that to let anybody know, so there's, it's mostly just people here from the church. So my first thought, Sheila, was, well, we're not going to see very many miracles today because God doesn't do dog and pony shows. That's he right. doesn't just, he doesn't just do his act. If you believe already, then you're probably not going to see as many miracles in your life. You're going to have to get out and do them in other people's life. And so I was thinking, well, this is probably going to be kind of a, kind of a bummer. But instead, I think uh, 16 people were healed that day. And I scratched my head as I walked away and I thought, okay, there's no sinners here, but yet we still healed 16 people. And Sheila, my conclusion is this, that you can walk into almost any church in the world, certainly in America, probably more so in America, and you can rest assured the bulk of the people sitting in the audience are unrepentant sinners. And so you, you can do miracles there, but you also can't expect unrepentant sinners to sacrifice or to care about the lost when they themselves are still lost. And they're just going through the motions to make themselves feel good or to make themselves feel like they're good parents dragging their kids through it. And we know that their kids... Uh, the overwhelming majority, nearly 80%, grow up with no faith at all because the parents didn't have any. And, and, and to be more frank and more blunt, Sheila, oftentimes the, people, the person standing in the pulpit is not even saved. 
Well, that's so true. And I love how when we look at how Jesus Christ used the approach of Elijah. In fact, that reminds me of William Lau's Elijah Healing Challenge. He talks about, you know, using our authority to cast out those spirits of infirmity. Jesus often did that very succinctly, went around healing and delivering. I mean, let's face it, that's two thirds of his ministry. And yet people just want to say a nice little prayer. Well, pray for me that I get healing. But really, we are supposed to be using our authority. And it's amazing. There's a teaching he gives on the centurion that says, hey, I tell this one to go. He goes. We just exercise our authority. And it's just, it's incredible that here in the West, people just, they really don't get it. And it's kind of stunning. I mean, you've you've worked as a prison chaplain. You've worked with a lot of gang members and other very marginalized populations, giving them hope. Carl, I'm tired of armchair Christians. They've got a lot of say, but they don't want to do a lick for Christ. The fields are white. I mean, it's really important that people get out there and make themselves available. But the problem is... Healing and deliverance isn't really a part of the equation. They're really not equipped to go and, and do this kind of work, are they, in general? No, they're not. I, I, I will tell you, you know, Jesus didn't talk about the church that much. I think he mentioned it three times. But he did talk about the kingdom of God. And the truth is the kingdom of God has not arrived in most of our churches yet. And the and the truth is the churches are supposed to be an outreach of the kingdom of God. But so often it's just the opposite. And you know, William Lau is a personal friend of mine. I trained under him. In fact, I represented him as uh, in the Philippines as his lead director in the Philippines for the Elijah Challenge stuff. So, yeah, we're good friends. And that was um, the way that we healed. And... Uh, what we have seen is when, when the people of God will stand up on their hind legs like a man and go do the work, miracles occur. And as you said, the fields are white. We've, we've done evangelism. I've done evangelism in Mexico, and I thought, wow, so easy to do evangelism here. Then we did evangelism uh, you know, in Houston. Wow, so easy to do evangelism there. We went to Asia. Whoa, much easier. I had people tell me, the way you do evangelism won't work with a Buddhist. So when we went to Thailand, I witnessed several Buddhists who came to faith right there. Um, one, one young lady that was on the bus with us, I began to see, you know, I always look for these God coincidences because they're not coincidences, they're divine appointments. But we transferred vehicles about four or five times, and I noticed every time we transferred vehicles, this young lady was on the vehicle. Finally, it got down to the point when we were doing the last leg of our trip, we were going to the Karen refugees who suffer so much from the um, the Buddhist government in Myanmar. You see so many people with amputations from landmines and things like that. They're planted in the Christian fields and farms and villages. But um, on that last leg, she was in the vehicle with us, in the same vehicle with us, which now has about six people. So I began to share the gospel with her and ask her if she ever heard of Jesus and and all these things. And uh, she said she never had, never heard of Jesus, even though she worked as a as a, a maid or house cleaner or something in Singapore, which has uh, more Christians in it. So I began to share about Jesus and tell her about all this stuff. And I give her some tracts and things. She spoke pretty good English, and we had a, a great conversation. And uh, and then all of a sudden I looked back and she was just holding her head, and she was dropping her. And she says, "I'm sorry. I'm just. I'm, I have such a such a pain in my head. I I just can't. Something's wrong." And I knew right then that God sent her to be healed. There was some kind of a spirit of infirmity, some kind of something there. But we had we're driving down the road, around, whipping around mountain trails and stuff, and she's in the back seat, and my son and I are in the front seat and it's a little bit hard to do deliverance or healing there and they finally they dropped us at the last bus station and we had to run inside and get tickets 
And we come back outside. I told my son, hurry, come with me. We're going to heal this woman. And we went right over there, and I went into, and I told her, I said, do you remember this Jesus we were talking about? She says, yes, he's a wonderful man. And I said, I want to show you that he's real. And I said, I believe Jesus is going to heal you right now. I believe that's a spirit that when I was talking to you, an evil spirit got stirred up. And that's what he wanted you to not hear the rest of what I had to say. So I rebuked that spirit and I commanded it to come out and I commanded the healing. And she turned, she turned around to me and she goes, it's true, it's true, for sure, for sure, it's gone. I said, are you sure it's gone? She says, yes, it's gone. And I said, well, how, how do you know? Because I'm used to fake evangelical charismatics faking that they're healed when they're not healed. And I said, how do you know you're healed? She says, because it came out of me and it went and the pain is gone. Wow. And I said, well, praise God. So then we got back in the vehicle to go. I'll never forget. She came around to the to the driver's side on the next vehicle we're on because she was actually going back to Burma, going to go across the, the border illegally. But that was a lot closer to her home village. And she's standing at the window of my car, and she's shouting this in a Buddhist bus station in Thailand, a Buddhist country. She's shouting, Jesus, Jesus is real. Jesus is real. And she's pointing to the sky and telling me as we drive away. And um, so we left her with um, with the, the Gospel of John, and we left her with some other tracks and stuff. And we have not heard back from her. But I will tell you, if you'll preach the Gospel, Buddhists get converted. I was in China working with the underground church. And as part of our job, uh, while you're working with the underground churches, you have to tour, or at least the way we did it was, you have to tour a certain amount of the day and keep the tickets with you because when the police stop you, you need to show that you were a tourist. So so two or three hours a day or every other day we would tour. And big long story about how we would get to the underground churches. They would, they would, we would drive down to a to a Starbucks and go in the front door, go out the back door, and then and run down the street to a van that was waiting to us and jump in the van, and away we were going with Wild Chase to get to the place where we were teaching these people from the underground churches. But one of these days when we were touring, the tourist guide was with us. They're college students who speak uh, good English. They can translate. And so, um, and of course, they're not Christians, most of them are not, because that's part of the thing. These regular people, we were touring with them just like tourists. And uh, I was asking her when we were at Tiananmen Square, Sheila, which is where the the big massacre took place. Um, And uh, actually, it's interesting that I think the American press says, you know, two to three hundred or six hundred people. But the the Chinese themselves will tell you that 20,000 people died there. They said that the whole all the the floor had to be torn up and steam cleaned because of the blood and tissue that was left behind. But um, anyway, I was asking her about that, and she said something that told me she was not a typical Chinese person. She said, my professor said in college that the young people here loved their country, but they didn't love the government. Now, for a Chinese person, that's a huge huge admission because your government is your country into their way of thinking. And so later we finally got to the Great Wall of China, and I was talking with her. We went one direction, the other group went the other way, and I began to share with her. I said, do you know what Jesus is about? Do you know what Christianity is about? She goes, no, I don't really know. She says, I, even, I have even attended a Christian church once. 
not an underground church, but the government church. And she says, I really don't understand it. And she says, you know, I have a Bible. And I said, you do? And she says, yes. Well, I questioned her. It turns out she has the book of Genesis. That's it. And uh, and I asked her, I said, well, have you read about Jesus in there? Before I narrowed it down, that was only the book of Genesis. And she says, no, there's no Jesus in my Bible. But she says, but I love Joseph. I love to hear about Joseph. I read about Joseph all the time. And uh, so I began to share a little bit more with her. But I shared the gospel exactly the same format, a little maybe a little bit slower and a, and a little bit uh, culturally sensitive to her right there on the Great Wall of China. And after I shared the gospel with her, I could see this question mark on her face, and I just walked off. And in a little while, she caught up to me, and she's walking along, and I can see her looking down. She's not smiling and looking around and pointing out different historical features to me anymore. And she's just walking along, and uh, and then I stopped, and I said, what are you thinking? She says, she would never say God. She would say the God. She, would, she says, I'm thinking the God was very smart to do it this way by by using the, his own justice against his son to set us free from the justice that we deserved as sinners who have violated his law and uh, rebelled against him. She says, I'm thinking that God was very smart. I told her, I said, if the God is that smart, do you want to follow him? She says, I would like to, but I don't know of another church. And she says, I told her, I said, you can pray to God here. She says, you can pray on the Great Wall of China. I said, yes, you can pray right here. God is everywhere. He hears everything. The world is hers, is his, the fullness thereof, and all that dwell in it. He hears and sees everything. And so I shared the gospel with her right there. She confessed faith in Christ. This girl, uh, Sheila, was walking along, uh, clapping her hands and smiling and skipping and clapping her hands. So happy. Uh, we got back to the tour group, and I said, I, I want to tell the group. Would it be okay with you if I tell the group that you're a Christian now? And she says, I want to tell them too. Now this girl has been this girl has been a Christian for 45 minutes Sheila and she stood up at the front of the bus and she gave a 20 minute testimony to the people on the bus about how God had changed her life and how she was a new girl and how the God lived in her heart now and that the, all the bad things were gone and that she felt like she could float now she felt like she could fly because the God had come inside of her and the bad things have gone for 20 minutes she's been a Christian for 45 minutes she's sharing the gospel with the people in the bus for 20 minutes 20 minute testimony that's incredible isn't it yeah, we've no, we have people and you know people that are Christians for 30 years and they can't share for five minutes what God has done in their life. And the, the reason is oftentimes God hasn't done anything in their life. They don't expect him to do anything. They don't see the miracles. They don't live the miracles. They don't flow in the miracles. They don't know the power. They don't know the majesty. They don't know the authority that Jesus, that we have in Jesus' name. And if you don't know, you can't share it. And as you said, I have found every place I've been in the world, whether it was Buddhist, Hindu, animist, Roman Catholic, Muslim, everywhere I have been, the fields are white. Well, most people today don't even believe that speaking in tongues is necessary being baptized in the Holy Ghost. So, you know, it's not surprising you're not really seeing much power. How tough is it as an American, especially a Texan, to be a missionary and a servant of God, proclaiming the kingdom of God to these gospel-resistant populations, especially Hindus, Buddhists, idol worshippers, and followers of the predominant religions in the Middle East and Asia and Africa, Carl? 
I do find the most difficulty is with Muslims uh, next to Jehovah's Witness and Mormons, which they're all similar cults. Uh, they just haven't had the power that the Islam has had. But uh, the Muslims are the most difficult, but even I have found, generally speaking, now I've kind of been attacked by Muslims a couple of times, um, and by God's grace, nothing came of it. But even Muslims, I have found that if you can get them away from other Muslims and you can have a conversation with them, they'll hear you. The problem is Islam is a very totalitarian cult. And if you're seen talking with, with someone who's not a Muslim or doing anything that might lead you to being converted, uh, you're going to get tremendous pressure uh, on other people. We had a, a young, uh, young lady that we knew in Indonesia, and under normal circumstances, anyone would have said she was an attractive girl, but she was raised by, in a Muslim family, and then the, as is common in the Middle East, in uh, Asia, when there's a shortage of money and the family's going through a hardship, they'll sort of farm the children out to the other relatives to help them take care of them until they can get back on their feet again, and then they bring the kids back. Well, they farmed her out to some relatives who were Christians, and over a period of time, she became a Christian, and she committed herself to Jesus Christ as a young teenager. And there came a time, she was still allowed to meet with this with this family, there came a time when she had to go home, and her family would let her go over and visit them on the weekend. Of course, what they didn't know was she was visiting them, and they were having a house church going every weekend, and, and she was careful not to cause a conflict, but at the same time, not hide her faith. If somebody... And the, the way we've, we call them Bible-believing Muslims or Muslim believers or Christian believers who are, who are Muslim, um, we tell them, you know, continue on the best you can where you are, share your life, continue to serve God, obey him, and let people see the change in your life. And as they see the change in your life, they'll come to you. And when they come to you, you begin to carefully share the gospel with them. And uh, and that's how we build these underground churches in these Muslim areas. But one time when she was at home, some, there was some good news that happened in her family, and she accidentally blurted out, praise Jesus. And when she did that, the whole family said, what? Now, they won't deny their faith, but they're also not going to commit suicide by going out and waving it around and shoving it in everybody's face. But when they asked her, Are, what have, what's happened to you? Have you become a Christian? Well, she couldn't deny Christ. So she had to say she was a Christian. Well, the beatings and the torture began right there. In fact, they kept her for over three weeks locked in a closet. And one of the ways that they tortured her, she was a young, attractive girl. I imagine she was about seven, 16, 17 when this happened. When we knew her, she was about 19 years old. What they did is they took cigars and cigarettes, and they held her down, and they burned them, put them out all over her face, scarring her face all over. And she never denied Christ. And at the end, at the end of that time, she was they was locked in a closet, and she was crying out to God. And the Christian family, they didn't know where she was, but they knew that they had her, and they thought maybe she'd they'd sent her off to another area with more Muslims. Well, one day she was sitting in the closet where she had been beaten, and uh, the door just popped open. So she opened the door very quietly, and she looked around, and everybody was gone. And after after they had locked her in the closet, somehow the door didn't remain locked. An angel opened it. So she gathered up all her clothes, and she fled to the Christian family who took her in and hid her. And by the time I knew her, she was now a church planter. 
And and by the way, somebody who had to go through a lot of deliverance to get through demons of rejection like this that came in when you're being tortured by your own family uh, because of this Islamic faith. But but my experience is if you can get one-on-one with Muslims, they'll hear you. And and they'll actually readily confess. I would tell I would tell Muslims all the time that that Jesus, Isa al Masih, as they call him, I would say he said that it's not what goes into you defiles you, but what comes out of a man. And they would say, yes, that's true. And I said, in that case, then then because uh, they would always I would ask them what is sin, and they would say, well, smoking and drinking and eating pork. And I said, well, those things are probably not smart, but they're not sin. Sin is what comes out of your heart. And they would always say, yes, that's true. That makes so much sense. But if another Muslim walks up, that's a different story. It can cost them their life. In fact, I'll just share with this issue. It's kind of a funny antidote. But one of the things we used to do was during the rainy season, uh, we would be doing evangelism in the park. And a lot of the vendors are Muslims. The people selling trinkets and things in the park are Muslims. And whenever it would rain, everyone would seek shelter. And the Muslims became a captive audience. They couldn't get away. So then we could stand up and preach to them for a half an hour straight and address issues with Islam and address all kinds of different sin problems and the need to repent and to turn from your sins and and the difference between a false god and a real god and that the real god heals and the real god forgives and the real god has power over demons and the real god can change your life, not just change the way you dress. And uh, and that way, Muslims would hear the word. The problem is there's so much totalitarian fear in Islam that they are really afraid of uh, another Muslim finding out that they're open to the gospel or that they've come to faith. And uh, that's the problem. But I, I actually believe even with Muslims, the fields tend to be white if you can remove them from the threat of other Muslims. I was reading yesterday that there are schools, Carl, in California, teaching kids to pledge allegiance to Allah. Allah is the one true God. Did you ever think we would see a day here in North America when the butchering of our brethren would be ubiquitous, these beheadings and barbaric beatings and horrid kinds of tortures that we are seeing right now in America? I mean, what I want to know is why is it crickets chirping in the pulpits right now about this? Well, because they're all laying low. You know, uh, I, I talked about this a few weeks ago, and I told people, you know, people, we are, they're all scratching our head. We're saying, well, how can homosexuals and Muslims be on the same side against Christians? And how can atheists and Muslims be on the same sides against the Christians? And how can the humanists, the materialists, and Hollywood and Muslims their their goals, their plans, everything are at odds with each other, all be on the same side against Christians. And the problem is, not just in the pulpits, but in the church in general, is we haven't recognized that there's two kingdoms at work in this world. And it's the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world, or the kingdom of darkness, or Satan's kingdom. Now, the kingdom of God looks like Jesus Christ, which it really excludes a lot of people who call themselves Christians because most of don't even look like Jesus Christ. But the kingdom of darkness has many heads, Sheila. It's got an atheistic head. It's got a Muslim head. It's got a Buddhist head. It's got a Hindu head. It's got a materialist head. It's got a Hollywood head. It's got every perversion you can think of. It's got abortion. It's got all these different heads, which naturally they should be at war with each other. But they have a common enemy. The common enemy is the kingdom of God. You see, the kingdom of darkness has many faces. 
but the kingdom of God has just one. It's Jesus Christ. And so we're under attack from many different directions. And the problem is most Americans in the pulpit, as you said, and most of the people sitting in the pews in the church today, they're still so they're so busy fighting one little face, one little head, one little issue that they don't realize this is one great massive spirit of darkness and evil. And it may you know it just like sin, one person's temptation is not another person's temptation. So it is with the kingdom of darkness. It has a lot of different faces. It comes at you with this Muslim face, and it comes at you with this passive, wimpy, lukewarm Christian face as well. It comes at you with the, you know, with the smiling preacher that says everybody's going to heaven, and it comes at you with the, with the, uh, with the other face, with the, uh, the head cutting, you know, burning alive Muslim who says nobody's going unless you're like us, and yet. It's all the same source. It's all the same power. It's all the same kingdom of darkness. And until we recognize the many faces of evil are all evil and stop dealing with the face itself, then the kingdom of God can't advance either. And that's the problem is we're, we're so busy pointing out these things. And we seem to be shocked to find out that atheists who don't believe in God and Muslims who don't believe in God and homosexuals who are perverse and don't believe in God uh, can all work together to attack the kingdom of God. And and because we don't recognize the kingdom of God, because we don't recognize these two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of light, much of the church is asleep at the wheel, and much of the church is very content dealing with their issue, which is, you know, they got serious persecution because they were the sixth one in line at Walmart, and they don't have time to worry about what's really going on in the world. Well, they don't. And I mean, ISIS really is evil incarnate. It's really the new face of evil. But as believers, we can start binding this up. Luke ten nineteen says, you know, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. I mean, that's really important here. We have weapons of warfare. I know in my Wednesday prayer group, our intercessors, we take authority over these devils. You know, and most people email me and say, well, Sheila, how can we deal with this situation? But yet, you know, they won't even get in their prayer closet it's incredible to me yeah you know it's exactly true unfortunately most christians today especially when it comes to dealing with islam and there's a lot of other topics if they had their way they they would deal with them the same way they want to deal with them in the physical but every one of these things is a spiritual problem it's manifesting into the physical just like demons are a spiritual problem. If you think if you think it's all about insecurity and you think it's all about bipolar and all these different things, if you think that's the only issue, then uh, you've you've forgotten that we have the weapons and that the weapon is a spiritual weapon and these are all uh, spiritual issues and we try to deal with them in the physical. I don't know. I've seen this over and over again where you have young – I know one case of a young man who wanted to go into ministry. He was completing his engineering degree. Then he was planning on going off to seminary, wanted to go in ministry, wanted to be a missionary and unbeknownst to me – and he was talking to me uh, occasionally – on the internet about his plans and I was my ideas and I hadn't had a chance to actually get to know him in real life and the next thing you know he commits suicide wow. so then so then I come and find out the rest of the story well he's been having these psychotic episodes how well, when did these psychotic episodes well it started when he became a christian when he committed himself to christ well 
you know, I, I, there's there are psychotic episodes that are that are real as well, and there is some real mental disease. But my experience in the case of bipolar is that on every single case that I've dealt with, it's been demonic, and it's been a case of some form of child abuse or neglect, or as an oftentimes uh, sexual abuse. So here, here this uh, as it turns out, this young man had, his father had even taken him to the elders, and they prayed over him. And sent him home, and he blew his brains out two weeks later. Well, okay. he didn't need to be prayed for. He needed somebody who would man up and take the name of Jesus in faith and drive out the wicked one, who would recognize it's not just one kid who's who uh, can't can't get control of himself. This is a spiritual problem. These are spiritual uh, attacks, and you cannot deal with a spiritual attack in the physical. You have to have the right tools. Jesus gave us his name, and he gave us – he said that all authority in heaven and earth was given unto him. And so we were to go and to make disciples. We were to cast out demons, lay our hands on the sick, and they will recover. That's our calling. But most of the church not even interested, nor do they even know that calling, nor do they know even the words of Jesus. Well, I think it's so important what you just said. There really are no physical solution for spiritual problems. But Carl, look at the look at the West. Eighty percent of the people are hopped up on pharmacia. The word there in the Greek is sorcery. I mean, how convenient is it that the devil would have the big answer for us? You know, the the answer for demonic affliction is to get hopped up on all these vile forms of pharmacia. I mean, that is really a deadly combination, isn't it? Yes, you just you just uh, you just trade one symptom for a, a more powerful spirit, and 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 so the symptom doesn't seem to be as bad, but now you've given yourself over to this new demonic spirit and a new threshold that uh, has, has come into your life, and uh, you're not going to be set free. You can you can change the face, like as we talked about this evil empire. You can change faces. You can go from being a Muslim to being an atheist. I knew a young man who was both a homosexual and a Muslim and an atheist before he got converted. Okay, so he had he had, he had three different faces of evil. He had a load of demonic spirits inside of him, and uh, but it was still it's all the same source of evil, and it was all spiritual from beginning to end. And we have the answer. We have the solution, but most of the church doesn't realize it. It's, it's interesting that you read some of the early Christians before the time of Constantine, before the church went through the becoming this hybrid that we, as we know it as today. Some of the early Christians who contested with the Jews of that time, and they would say, the proof that God is with us now is that we have the power to heal, that we still have prophets, that we can raise the dead, that we can still drive out demons. And you don't, because you don't have the name of Jesus and you don't recognize him. But you know what? Sad to say, Sheila, much of the church today might as well not have the name of Jesus because they don't know what it means. You know, you know the term Jesus is Lord. Used to, one of the biggest megachurches in this area had a big billboard. They have this big sign, Jesus is Lord, but nobody knows what that means because if you say Jesus is Lord, you're saying Jesus is your owner. Because the landlord owns the land. And if you say Jesus is Lord, you say he's your owner. That means you give up all your rights. You become a slave, a bondservant. And, and you're bound to him. And now your will, your plans, your desires, the things that you want and do are the things that he requires. Because he becomes the owner. He becomes your master. But we don't do that. We say Jesus is the Lord, but leave me alone. I'm going to do it my way. And when I get in trouble, if it really gets bad, then I need you to intervene. Otherwise, 
Jesus, I got it. Don't worry about it. And because of that, we're powerless before any spiritual dilemma or situation or circumstances or spirits. Well, you know, you were talking about the early church. Those early church boys, they didn't have paid evangelism. They didn't have these mega church memberships or New York Times bestselling books. They didn't get on TV and beg, but they did turn the world upside down. And that's really the piece that we're missing. That fire, that Holy Spirit power that shook the building in the book of Acts. I mean, it's incredible, the anointed power. I mean, you look at a guy like Smith Wigglesworth. 37 people were raised from the dead. There was people that were were absolutely healed in his shadow. I mean, that's the kind of power that we need to be seeing in the church today. But it, it's just really sad. You've got these pukes in the pulpit that are just the, the pulpit is right. Because when you take the, the fruit away, that really, you know, you're left with just the pulp. I mean, the, that essential fruit is missing really, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why, Sheila, we're such um, big believers in house churches. I've, I've been in, I've pastored institutional churches on three occasions, both here and, and uh, overseas. And uh, I really believe that the model where people grow the best and grow the quickest, and they learn to rely upon Christ the, 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 the best, is in the house church model. We took uh, college students who came to faith under our ministry, and we discipled them in, in house groups and many in, in house churches, and then they would form their own house churches, their own groups in their college and university and be meeting two or three days a week, and and they would be bringing other students and training other students and other students to these things. And, and frankly, Sheila, the Holy Spirit was working so powerfully. And so we had people who were Christians for two weeks who were driving out demons. We had In one case, we had a case of, of a guy who was a Christian for two days and healed somebody the next day. This was not unusual, but that's not the amazing part. Here's the amazing part was we had young people who'd been Christians for eight months, nine months, who knew more Bible and knew more Scripture and understood the original and the actual intent of what the Scripture meant than people who had been in the church for 20 and 25 years before them. They would literally come in as new babies and pass these people up standing still in less than a year. And they were already sharing their faith, routinely doing evangelism, and they were praying for the sick and seeing the sick recover, and they were involved in deliverance ministry. I won't say most places you would say they were just babes while they're just barely starting out, and it was true that they were, but in that house church environment where they interact with the information, where they're discipling and praying for each other and calling out for each other and feeding off of each other, and the Holy Spirit is present and working, people grow amazingly quick. In comparison to people who, you know, I always say that the body of Christ has been reduced to just two parts now. Now the body of Christ is nothing but a rear and an ear because the whole body of Christ sets on its rear and listens with its ear and does nothing. There's no hands and feet. There's no going to the lost. There's nothing that matters. And so they become just rears and ears. And the good thing about the house church environment is there's no room for rears and ears. You got to pray for each other. You need to worship together. You need to you you share each other's lives. And so what happens is you begin to move quickly. And then we come in this way. We do exactly what they did in the New Testament. We colonize planet Earth with the kingdom of God. We send out little groups of people to form a little colony here called a house church in this community and one over there in that community and uh, one in Corpus Christi and one in Edinburgh, Texas and one in Mission, Texas and two in Houston, Texas. And then they began to spread. 
and they begin to spread and they begin to influence people. You can drive down the street. We have, we, I can throw a rock and hit a megachurch building here from where we live. But you know what? You'll see more real faith on a Sunday or Saturday afternoon when the church assembles here and it's um, probably less than 20 people all total. But you'll see people who can tell you about miracles, wonders, how God has changed their life. Uh, You'll see people here who are saying our family was saved, our life was saved, our career was saved. God has been changing us, morphing us. That's real Christianity. And as long as we're settling for being a rear and an ear, we're never going to experience the kingdom of God. We're never going to experience the power of God. Why would the Holy Spirit flow into somebody who won't read what he wrote? Why would the Holy Spirit change someone's life when the person doesn't want to be changed? You see, this is, this is the thing. The Holy Spirit does not come in and force you to do anything. You must submit to him. And you must obey him and not grieve him. Even, you know, we, this is the problem with the term demon possessed. Even the Holy Spirit himself doesn't possess you. In the end, you still possess. And you can allow the Holy Spirit to work or you can resist the Holy Spirit. And the same is true with demons. And in the name of Jesus, we can, we can resist them and we can drive them out. But if the church doesn't know and it's not being told and they've settled for something far less. And uh, therefore, the kingdom of God in, and the church is um, it's we're mocked in public, and I you know I can't really stand against it because the truth is most of the things they're mocking us for our hypocrisy and for our lack of power are true. It's very true. It is very true. Well, settling for something far less, you are right. And house churches are really the way to go. You are right about ears and rears. A lot of people are just hearers of the word, but they're not doers. And uh, I just really want to thank you so much, Carl, for coming on the program. You have such an incredible ministry. Thank you for being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Being a servant really is so rewarding. And thank you for the work that you do. And thank you so much again for coming on the program. Well, thank you, Sheila, and we hope that we can uh, we can spend some more time together in the future. And I just praise God to get the word out. The real kingdom of God, this real thing that we're called to is so exciting and so vibrant and so powerful. Don't settle for a weak, lukewarm copy of a copy of a copy of a bad American church and not the kingdom of God. Amen. Well, folks, Carl's information is linked there at WeekendVigilante.com. I really encourage you to get behind Carl. Send him an email. All the information, again, is linked there on the website. Folks, thank you for tuning into the program tonight. And a big shout out to our listeners, Worldwide Christian Radio out of Nashville, Tennessee, and all the listeners around the globe. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Good night and God bless. The Sheila Zielinski Show is sponsored by SteveQuayle.com, offering a wide variety of products links, headlines, and information for the end times. Order Steve's new book, Little Creatures, by visiting stevequail.com. Dare to discover, learn, prepare, and be amazed. What would it mean to you if you could have more energy, less joint and muscle discomfort, faster recovery from exercise, better sleep, sharper mental focus, a stronger immune system, less inflammation, a slower aging process, and a higher quality of life. Your body makes its own miracle molecule that can give you all of the above and more. It just couldn't make enough of it until now. Max International introduces a groundbreaking nutritional supplement called Celgevity that offers unsurpassed glutathione production. 
Glutathione is one of the most vital antioxidants in the entire human body. These miracle capsules can turn back the clock, helping you feel and look much younger. Sheila Zielinski takes Celgevity, and it is one of the most powerful anti-aging, anti-inflammatory supplements that she has ever experienced. And Dr. Don Colbert, New York Times best-selling author of Toxic Relief, agrees with her. And the best part? It's Chuck Norris approved. He says they are life-changing. Take a listen. Hi, I'm Chuck Norris. Do you believe this lie? That this is as good as it's going to get? That you're never going to feel better than you feel right now? Well, don't believe that. No matter what your life is like right now, I'm telling you, your life can get a lot better. The company is Max International. Their patented breakthrough nutritional products are truly life-changing. Taking this supplement just might make a new you. Visit WeekendVigilante.com and click on Look Younger in 30 Days, Guaranteed. You will be glad you did. Guaranteed.